pray together. Dear God, uh, whether we know you ourselves or whether we're still uh, getting to know you, discovering you, we pray that you'd speak to us through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we would be changed, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Can you remember the last time someone forgot your name? Uh, their awkward expression uh, said it all. Despite meeting on several previous occasions, it was pretty obvious they had no idea what you were called. Or perhaps they did call you something, but they called you totally the wrong name. In fact, they called you that name the last time they saw you, and it's all getting rather embarrassing. I hope that that hasn't happened to you this morning, and if it has, um, I'm sorry. It's a fact of life that some people are good with names, other people are not. And it's also true that names really matter. It's just not right if someone calls us the wrong name. It's rightly awkward and embarrassing if we can't remember someone's name. Because our name is an important marker of who we are. It sets me apart from you and you apart from the person that you're sitting next to. We've got individual names because we're individual people. Our names matter, and so it matters if we forget them. But here's another question. Does God remember your name? Is God committed to knowing you personally and deeply? Am I me and are you you in the minds of a personal God? Or are we just statistics in a vast supercomputer that we like to call God? Does God remember your name? Well, our reading today is full of names, and it points us to a God who remembers our name. It reminds us of the joy that we can know if we know the God who knows us by name, and it speaks of the security, the eternal security we can be sure of if we know him by name. It's quite a hard passage to understand, but I think we'll be repaid if we work hard on it. So let's start just by remembering the story so far. Naomi has returned from Moab to Bethlehem. She went there with her husband and her sons in a famine, and she returns just with her Moabite daughter-in-law, because everyone else has died or gone home, and they are destitute and hungry. But Ruth works hard in the harvest fields, and whilst she's there, she meets Boaz, a guardian redeemer of her family, a knight in shining armour, who might just reverse their fortunes. And spurred on by Boaz's generosity to Ruth throughout the harvest season, Naomi hatches a plan to get Boaz to marry Ruth. And she arranges a blind date, which we saw last week. And during that nighttime encounter, Ruth basically asks Boaz to marry her. Boaz is delighted. He's more than willing to do his family duty. But there's a catch. There's another guardian redeemer ahead of him in the queue. And so last week we saw, we saw Boaz reassure Ruth that he's going to sort it out um, in the morning. And this morning um, we get to that morning. Morning dawns and it's time for Boaz to put his plan into action. 
And as he does that, we begin to see more of what we started to see last week. Because Boaz is not just Naomi and Ruth's guardian redeemer, he's also a picture of our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at Boaz, we're going to see Jesus. We're going to learn, first of all, our redeemer paid a costly price for our redemption. Our redeemer paid a costly price for our redemption. Verse 1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, Come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, Sit here. And they did so. The city gate in those days was the place where business and justice was done. So Boaz goes to the city gate, he sits down, and he looks out for this kinsman, this guardian redeemer, who is ahead of him in the queue. And when the man arrives, he, Boaz gathers ten other community elders to act as witnesses for the business he's about to propose. And what happens next takes both us, the reader, and the other guardian redeemer by surprise. Verse 3. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of those seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Well, we thought that Naomi came back from Moab with nothing other than the clothes on her back. But now we're told she owns a field and she's looking to sell it. It raises a whole load of questions in our heads. Who's been looking after it while she's been away for the last 10 years? Why didn't it provide her and Ruth with an income when she got back? Why did Ruth have to go to Boaz's field instead of Naomi's field to work? Well, we don't know answers to any of those questions, but the fact remains Naomi has got a field to sell. And Boaz knows that it's this guardian redeemer's responsibility to redeem it, to buy it back. Maybe somehow that's going to give Naomi a helping hand. It's going to lift her out of poverty. And the kinsman, the guardian redeemer, says that he's willing to pay the price. And then Boaz plays his trump card and he skillfully manoeuvres his competitor into checkmate. So verse 5. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. What is going on here? Well, it seems that Boaz is combining two different legal customs. On the one hand, the guardian redeemer's responsibility to buy back Naomi's land, the, the land of a poor relative. And on the other, the responsibility of a surviving brother to marry his brother's widow. That's a custom known as Leverite marriage. And uh, Leverite marriage clearly wasn't just for brothers, because this kinsman understands that it's his responsibility to marry um, Ruth as well. And so he quickly changes his tune, verse 6. At this, the guardian redeemer said, Then I cannot redeem it, because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. You see, he knows that if he's got to marry Naomi, then that's okay. She's old. She's unlikely to have a child. 
When she dies, the land will still belong to him and his estate, his inheritance, is fine for generations to come. It would be a win-win if he had to marry Naomi. But he's got to marry Ruth, and that's a different story altogether, because any son of hers will legally be not his heir, but Elimelech's heir. And so he will lose the money he spent to buy the fields, and the fields when it passes to Ruth's son. And so he pulls out of the deal. He's not prepared to pay the price of redemption. But Boaz is, verse 7. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalising transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy yourself. And he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife. So the deal is done, but it's not a cold-hearted business transaction. You see, it was going to cost the unnamed guardian redeemer to redeem Ruth and marry Ruth and redeem the land. So we must assume it was going to cost Boaz significantly too, because the son would be Ruth's son would be Elimelech's heir, not his. But Boaz chooses to sacrifice his interests, specifically his future inheritance, for the sake of Naomi and Ruth. It is an act of costly, voluntary, sacrificial love. He's willing to pay the price of redemption. And of course, we have a Redeemer who is willing to pay the price too. Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom, a redemption price for many. The Apostle Peter says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life, handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. The writer to the Hebrews said, Jesus entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. When Boaz was introduced in chapter 2, do you remember how he was introduced? A man of noble character. Well, Jesus was the ultimate man of noble character. He willingly paid the ultimate price, the price of his life, to redeem you and me. Our Redeemer paid a costly price for our redemption. But what exactly does Jesus' redemption achieve? What did he buy for you and me? Well, Boaz's redemption of Naomi and Ruth points us to the second answer, which is second, to the answer to the second lesson. Our Redeemer preserves our name beyond the grave. Our Redeemer preserves our name beyond the grave. Just come back to, with me to verse 9. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Marlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Marlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown 
Today, you are witnesses. Boaz says it twice, doesn't he? And he's already said it in verse 5, to maintain the name of the dead. And he is talking about those laws about Leverite's marriage, which I mentioned earlier, which um, are in Deuteronomy 25. Let me read to you. Deuteronomy 25, verse 5. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfil the duty of a brother-in-law to her. The first son she bears shall carry on the name of the dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. It's a striking image, isn't it? Blotting out someone's name. It's as if they've been erased from the history books or photoshopped out of the family album. Not only has that person died, but it's as if they never existed in the first place. All memory of them has vanished without a trace. Their name has been blotted out. And for the people of Israel, that was a, a fate worse than death, because they were God's chosen people. They were known by God personally, by name. He'd given them the land of Canaan as their inheritance as a nation, and then within that nation he'd given each family a bit of land, an area of the nation, as their own inheritance. So if they lost their land and never got it back, it was as if they never existed. They'd never been part of God's promise in the first place. It was a disaster to avoid at all costs, and hence this custom, which to us looks pretty odd, but to them made perfect sense, the custom of, of Leverite marriage, as Boaz put it, to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. So when Boaz redeemed Naomi, he preserved Elimelech's name beyond the grave. He ensured that Elimelech was remembered as part of God's people and that Elimelech's family did not lose their inheritance. And doesn't our Redeemer do that for you and me? See, death is the great leveller, isn't it? doesn't matter what we had or didn't have in life. We can't take anything with us. Everyone leaves everything behind. Even our names are left behind. Your phone has no signal, so I of course, they're etched onto a gravestone or they're written in the family records. And if we really, really make it, then our name might be spoken of for a few generations. But even Henry VIII's palaces are owned by the National Trust or something like that. Even Tutankhamun's treasures are displayed in a museum. And even history will forget them in the end. We'll all be forgotten in the end. Most of us, much sooner than we'd like to think. Our names buried under the sands of time. Our lives all but erased, not many generations after the bell tolls for us. But our Redeemer took on death. He triumphed over it. So he preserves our name beyond the grave. He guarantees that we have an inheritance ready to be enjoyed in eternity. Apostle Peter puts it like this. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept 
in heaven for you. So on the cross, Jesus gave up the eternal life that was his rightful inheritance. He gave it up to redeem us from death and to share his inheritance with us. An inheritance of imperishable, unfading, eternal life. A future in which God will know you by name and me by name and never, ever, ever forget what to call you. Jesus said this to his disciples. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He made this wonderful promise at the end of the Bible. The one who is victorious will be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life. But I will acknowledge that name before my father and his angels. He will never ever forget your name or mine. Each one of us, infinitely precious to him. Jesus, our Redeemer, preserves our name beyond the grave because he died and rose again for us. How are we going to respond to that wonderful news? Well, the last few verses of Ruth's story point us to the right way. Thirdly, our Redeemer is worthy of all honour and praise. Our Redeemer is worthy of all honour and praise. Do you remember the story of Ruth began with death? and bitterness. It ends with life and rejoicing. First of all, Boaz, in verse 11, is prayed for and praised by the elders at the gate. The middle of that verse, may you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Literally, may you be called a name in Bethlehem, not in a derogatory sense, but in a, in a famous sense. And I think there's a deliberate contrast here, because do you remember the Redeemer at the beginning of verse 1? He's not named, because he won't do his duty. But Boaz, his extraordinary kindness, the fact that he is willing to pay the price for redemption means that his name is honoured and praised. And then their prayers for his family reveal more of that praise for him. Verse 11, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. Rachel and Leah were Jacob's wives. Their children became the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 12, through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Like Ruth, Tamar wasn't by birth part of God's people, but her son Perez became the ancestor of many within the tribe of Judah. And the elders pray that Boaz too would have many descendants like Rachel and Leah and Tamar because his name is worthy of honour and praise. And then as if to make the point that God is going to answer that prayer, our narrator takes us to what is perhaps the climax of the whole book in the most understated way. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Do you know this is only the second time in the whole book when God is said to do anything explicitly? The first time was at the back of the beginning of the book when we were told that the Lord visited his people to give them food. He fixed the problem of the famine and now God supplies Naomi's other most pressing need, the need for an heir to preserve her husband's name 
and give her an inheritance in the future. And so it is no surprise at all when Naomi's friends break out in praise to the Lord. Verse 14. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. The women's praise moves a step beyond the praise of the, the elders of the gates because they shift the focus from Boaz to Boaz's son. They're saying, your son also, may he be famous in Israel because it's him, not Boaz, who's going to renew your life and sustain you in your old age. And then Naomi's story ends um, in the most beautiful way. Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. It's a surprise, isn't it, that Ruth just kind of fades into the background. But maybe that is because this story is more about Naomi than it is about Ruth. After all, don't forget how the story started. She came home and she told these same women, don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant and sweet. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because the Lord has afflicted me. He has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. And now what is she holding in her arms? A child, an heir. The Lord has used Boaz and Ruth to fill her up. It is the end of her story and she's been fully and finally redeemed. But it's not quite the end of our story. Obed was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz. Boaz the father of Obed. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. Do you remember the book began with a family tree, Elimelech, Marlon, and Kilion, all dead. And so it's fitting that the story ends with another family tree, ending in a king, King David. Because death may do its worst, but death will never overcome life. Because death is no match for the greatest redeemer of all the one born into this family, many, many years after Obed, King David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, the one who paid for you and me a costly price for our redemption, the price of his life, the one who preserves our names beyond the grave, who says, I will never blot out that person's name, but acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels, and the one who is worthy of all our honour, and praise. Should have a moment of quiet, and then I'll lead us in a prayer.